Well, we're continuing this morning with our study of Romans chapter 2, and we're going to read a, a good chunk of Scripture, give a bit of a flyover of, of chapters 2 and, and half of chapter 3. So uh, if you read along, we're going to read this and, and uh, get a bird's eye view of, of what's going on here with the Apostle Paul and the argument that he's making here in the book of Romans. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey righteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide of the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness, does their faithlessness, Nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. 
But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. Well, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word to us this morning. Well, let us not lose the forest for the trees. There's a lot going on here in this passage, and a lot that might seem foreign to us in the 21st century. But as we look at this, I want to uh, help us to see what Paul is saying uh, overall in the grand argument that he's making, uh, because his point is made over several chapters. And in chapters 1 through 3, Paul is explaining why he is doggedly determined to proclaim the gospel, the good news about Jesus, to the Romans. He said, I want to come to Rome, I've never been there, and I want to preach the gospel to you. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says there in verses 15 and 16. And he's telling us why everyone needs to hear the gospel, needs to believe the gospel. Everyone in the world, and Paul went about his life determined to tell everyone what Jesus had done for people who are lost and who need Jesus. A couple of days ago, I went out into the backyard to rake some leaves up, and uh, I noticed over to the side there was a hawk on the ground. And uh, he was alive, not a dead hawk, but the squirrel that he had was dead, and he was eating the squirrel. And I, I thought, well, that's pretty cool. And uh, pulled out my phone to take a picture. And it was a little far away, so I, I crept up a little closer. And a little closer. This hawk was not about to leave his lunch. And he did not care how close I got. I got to about four feet away from him and was taking pictures. And he was gladly munching away. And I won't describe it for you. It was disgusting. Well... I decided, well, I'm just going to rake the yard. And so I raked the yard. The hawk never moved except to eat that squirrel. It reminded me of the Apostle Paul as I was thinking about the passage before us today. That hawk was determined to eat Mr. Squirrel for lunch, and nothing was going to deter him. In the same way, Paul is determined to preach the gospel. No matter what perils he might face, no matter what else is going on around him, 
Paul was all about preaching the gospel. It was that important of a message that needed to get out, probably with more determination than the hawk had. I, I actually did finally scare the hawk away. I finished raking the yard, and then I just thought, well, how close can I actually get without endangering myself? And I got to within about three feet, and he grabbed the squirrel with his talons, and away he flew to someone else's yard, a more peaceful spot. Well, beginning here in chapter 1, verse 18, which we looked at last week, Paul's explaining why people need the gospel. And the short answer that he uh, gives to us here in, verse, in chapters 1, 2, and 3 is that we need the gospel because God will judge those who ignore it, who refuse it. As chapter 2, verse 6 states, He will render to each one according to his works. Sooner or later... Every one of us will face God's judgment. Every human being is accountable to God, as Paul says in 3.19, every mouth being stopped, the whole world held accountable to God. We're all going to be held accountable to God. Now to help us grasp Paul's argument here, I want to make just two observations based on the text. We're going to look at the whole forest and not at the trees today. Two observations, and the first is there are three ways to live. There are three ways to live. And the second observation I want to make is that true Christianity is a matter of the heart. Now first, let's look at this, three ways to live. What do I mean by that? In chapter one, chapters 1 through 3, Paul describes three ways to live. He doesn't say here's three ways to live, but he describes them for us in what he's saying. And, and what he says here in Romans uh, 1.18 through 3.19, 3.20 uh, is, is the equivalent of the parable Jesus told in Luke 15, the famous parable, the parable of the lost son or the parable of the prodigal son, if you will. Now, in that, pro, in that parable of the prodigal son, Jesus tells a story about a, a man who had two sons, an older son and a younger son. The younger son uh, one day decides he's had enough and he asks the father for his inheritance. It says uh, in Luke 15, the younger son said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And the father divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into the far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. That picture is what's described in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, that we looked at last week. The picture of godlessness where, where uh, a person throws aside God, says, I don't want to have anything to do with God. And three times in chapter 1 it tells us that people who do not honor God, acknowledge God, or give thanks to God, God gives over to their desires, to their lusts, to sin. And it's a picture of a downward spiral into a vortex of sin that just washes over their head until they cease to even bear the image of God in the way that they behave. And the prodigal, the younger son in, the, in this parable 
He had gotten consumed with his sin until it was just completely ruining his life until he was almost acting like a pig, ready to eat the food that was given to the pigs. So that's one way to live. You can live a godless life, and, and people do all around the world. You can, you can refuse the knowledge of God that every human being innately has, according to Romans chapter 1. You can suppress that truth in your unrighteousness, and God says, okay, you can have what you want. And it becomes a, 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 cons, a, a consumption with sin and misery in your life. So that's the one way to live, the way of godlessness. But then there's a second way we can live that's being addressed here in chapter 2. And that is a picture that we get from the parable of the older son. The older son, who is actually what that, the, who is the, the, actually who that parable is pointing at. You know, we often call the parable the parable of the prodigal son, which is the son who goes out and squanders all the money. The parable is actually pointed at the elder son. It's a series of parables that Jesus says in response to the Pharisees and scribes. But then, you know, the, the younger son realizes the error of his ways and he comes back to the father, repenting. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But when the older son is there and he, he's out in the field and, and he hears a party going on, and it says, The older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But the older son was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. This is who is being described in chapter 2, where it says, You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, the older brother didn't run off with prostitutes and partying like the younger son did, but, as the text tells us, he too had a hard and impenitent heart. He was glad to obey all the rules. He stuck by the Father. But he wasn't really interested in having a relationship with the Father. Case in point, when it comes time for the party, he doesn't want to go in. He's bitter because he's welcomed the young son back. And he thinks, I'm better than that younger son, this son of yours. He doesn't even call him my brother. And he, he does not want to go in and have fellowship with the, with the brother nor the father, even though the father is begging him to come in. That's who Paul's addressing here. And this is the second way people can live. You can be very obedient. You can follow all the rules and be, still be out of fellowship with the father. Still have a hard and impenitent heart. Now this is the group church goers like us, the majority of us here, this is the group we would most likely fall into. The group of people who acts like they're Christians, looks like they're Christians, but really don't come to grips with the fact that they need Jesus too. And that's the problem here. 
You can avoid Jesus in two ways. You can avoid Jesus by going and living a godless life, like in chapter 1. But you can also avoid Jesus by being very moral and following all the rules and being very religious. Because if you think, well, I go to church, I've been baptized, I've, I read my Bible, I do this, I do that, I do, the, you know, do all these things, God is obligated when I die to welcome me into heaven. Well, you don't really need Jesus because you're doing all these things that you think obligates God to save you. That's who Paul's saying. They need the gospel too. They're going to come under judgment because like the older son, there's an impenitence, a hardness of heart, a hardness towards others, a hardness towards God the Father. Now, there's a third way to live, and that's the gospel way. That's what Paul's promoting. That's what he wants to proclaim. And that's the younger son when he's there in the pig pen feeding the pigs, and he wakes up. He comes to a census. It says there in the parable, When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put, on a ring, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Enter the older son. But this is an illustration of the gospel way, the way of, of repentance and faith. Turning from sin, turning from evil, turning from our own self-centered ways and running to the Father. Repentance and faith. That's what is being illustrated for us here uh, in the changed younger son. Everyone needs repentance because we do not perfectly keep the law. And that's the point that Paul's making here. Jews, he's talking about the distinction between Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Greeks. Jews were notorious for, for, for acting this way. You know, they could look around them at the pagan Gentile nations and they could say, look at those lost people, they're rejected by God, and we have it all together. We are God's chosen people. We've got the, 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 the ticket out of hell card. We, we are favored and we don't need to worry about anything because, because God's for us. But God, time and time again, had to point out to them, I'm not for you, I'm against you. Prophet Amos, he says... You know, don't long for the day of the Lord because that's not going to be a good day for you because you have rejected me. They didn't need the Lord. They were following the law. But he says there in verse 20, the last verse we read, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Anyone who thinks their religious uh, activities is going to save them or their morality is going to save them, you're in error. And that's what Paul's saying. You need to hear the gospel. You need to repent and put your faith in what Christ has done. Verse 9 of chapter 3. 
Uh, all are under sin, Jews and Greeks. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's a comprehensive statement right there. Everyone is a sinner. Everyone must repent. Everyone has, has failed to perfectly keep the law. So there are three ways to live. You can reject God altogether and, and go the pagan way. But there's also an equally dangerous way to go, and that's to be religious without actually repenting and putting your trust in what Christ has done. Instead, putting your faith in your own good works to save you when the day comes. And that leads me to the second point, second observation that I want to make, and that is that true Christianity is a matter of the heart. It's not all about externals, and that's who Paul's addressing here, the people who had all the externals, the good deeds, the the religious ceremonies, and so forth. Now, most of us here are not the people described in chapter 1, the godless. You're here in church, after all. Uh, we are more likely to fit into the second category. That would be the, the uh, temptation for us. So what is Paul's prescription for these people, and what does he, how does he point them to the gospel? He says, he starts talking about circumcision, which, of course, uh, doesn't have relevance to us in the New Testament era. Um, circumcision was a rite of God's people in the Old Testament. It is replaced by baptism in the New Testament. Paul tells these Jewish people who are looking down upon uh, the Gentiles particularly, he says, uh, verse 28, chapter 2, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. We could paraphrase that for our own uses today by saying, no one is a Christian who is merely one outwardly, nor is baptism outward and physical. But a Christian is one inwardly, and baptism is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. You know, it could be saying something like, you call yourself a born-again Christian, you're assured that you're all right with God because you signed a commitment card or walked an aisle or prayed a prayer, and you really cried that night. You remember you had strong feelings for God, so you must have been converted that night. And you are rather proud that you have memorized dozens of Scripture verses and that you attend church and have the right answer to a large array of theological questions. You brag to yourself that you've even led other people to make a commitment to Christ and you lead Bible studies. But so what? If you have been baptized, has there been a real change in your life? Has your heart been truly affected? Is there an internal softness, a true repentance, a humbled, grateful spirit, a sense of God's presence? Don't you know that Christianity is not having confidence in external things? It is a new creation inside that comes from putting your trust in Christ's achievements, not your spiritual achievements. The salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But it is not by a faith that is alone. That's why Paul points us to the judgment and says we'll be judged by our works. We're not saved by our works. 
We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. But we'll be judged by those works, and it's because if we are saved by grace, if we put our faith in Christ and we're changed from the inside out, then we will do good works. Our lives will exhibit that. That's the test for us, and that's what Paul is saying. You do all these external things, but you're not bearing fruit. And come judgment day, you're going to be in trouble because you do the very same things that the people who have rejected God do. You need to be changed from the inside out. You need to have your heart circumcised, not just your body. You need to have an internal baptism, not just the external one. Let's think about baptism for a moment rather quickly. Since that's the equivalent, the circumcision, baptism, circumcision in the Old Testament, baptism in the, the New Testament. And think about an internal baptism. You know, we, we think about fruit on a tree. That's the picture that Jesus gave us of, of how, you know, when we're changed inside, when, when the Lord makes us a new creature, it produces fruit. You, you think about an apple tree, you know, an we know what an apple tree is an apple tree because the apples that it bears. Uh, you can nail some apples up on an apple tree and it will look like an apple tree for just a short period of time, but that fruit won't last. But a healthy apple tree bears fruit and we see the life exhibited, the life of the tree exhibited in the fruit. The fruit does not give life to the tree. The fruit is the evidence of life. Same way, our works do not give us life. They do not save us. They're evidence of the life that is there already. Now, thinking about baptism in respect to that, uh, to, have a, to take the baptism that we have, probably the majority of us here in the Presbyterian Church were baptized as infants. You, you don't even remember your baptism. Uh, your parents brought you before the church and you were baptized. But you know that you were baptized and, and you need to think about that. The people in the Old Testament to whom Paul's writing here, well, they obviously knew they were circumcised. That's pretty hard to miss. But repeatedly through the Old Testament, they're told, circumcise not just your body, circumcise your heart. It's not just something Paul came up with. Moses said it back in Deuteronomy. Same way, baptism needs to be a baptism that is in the heart. We need to internalize it, not just have an external conformity to a ritual. The larger catechism says, Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament, wherein Christ has ordained the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost to be a sign and seal of engrafting into himself of remission of sins by his blood and regeneration by his spirit, of adoption, resurrection unto everlasting life, and whereby the parties baptized are solemnly admitted into the visible church and enter into an open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord's. I like that last phrase. We enter into, by baptism, an identification with an engagement to be holy and only the Lord's. We talk about dedicating a child at baptism. It's more than just dedication. But they're dedicated to the Lord. And as the child grows, 
We encourage our young people to embrace Christ themselves, to make the faith their own. We're engaged to be the Lord. You think about an engagement uh, to be married. You're engaged to be married to someone. Well, you're not actually engaged until you... Uh, and you're not actually married until you stand before the, the minister and you say the vows and, and afterwards the marriage is consummated. And the question I want to pose to everyone here today is, who's been baptized, you know, you're engaged to be the Lord's in your baptism, but have you gone to the wedding? Have you married Christ? Has the, has the engagement been consummated? Have you turned to him like the younger son and said, I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. I am lost without you and I need you to pluck me up out of the pit and bring new life where there's death. The larger catechism also, a couple of questions later, talks about improving our baptism. When we're present at someone's baptism uh, or in a time of temptation, we're supposed to think about our baptism. And it talks about remembering your baptism so that you can continue to walk in holiness of life and to think about that you have given up your name to Christ, given up your name to Christ. Uh, when uh, a couple is married, uh, the, you know, typically in our culture, the wife changes her name to the husband. She has given herself to the husband and become part of that a new family. And she takes his name. The same is true of a Christian who's been baptized. We, we take the name of Christ upon us. Are you bearing the name of Christ? That's the question I, I pose to you today to all of us here who are in danger of being these people in chapter 2 who look good on the outside, but is it a matter of the heart for you? Have you consummated your relationship with the Lord? Have you said, I do, to Christ? And are you His? And are you bearing His name? And are you living with Him and walking with Him? That's the question that Paul's posing. That's why we need the gospel, because mere outward conformity to a bunch of rules is not the gospel, and it's not what saves you. It is what Christ has done that saves you. And that is what must be believed. That's where you must place your faith in what Christ has done, not in your own works. That's why Paul preached the gospel. That's why we need to continue to hear the gospel, to be reminded of what he's done for us so that we won't fall into that same sort of behavior. Because even after we are believers, we have a tendency to go in those two different directions of either going towards godlessness or or going towards mere outward conformity to a standard. Christianity is about the heart, about our hearts, and we need to keep our hearts, as it tells us in in Proverbs. Uh, Keep your heart with diligence, for in it is the wellspring of life. That's where our life comes from. That's where the good works will come from. And when we stand before God, we can see exhibited, or he will see exhibited in us the life that he has given us through Christ. I want to challenge everyone here today to to say I do to Christ. To not just play the church game, but to turn to the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word that you have given us that challenges us with our sinful tendencies. Lord, we pray that, that myself and everyone here today 
would take a long, hard look at ourselves, that we would ha- not have a hard and impenitent heart, but like the, the prodigal son, we would recognize that we're not worthy in our own actions to be called your children, but yet you run out to greet us when we turn to you. Lord, grant us grace to turn to you today and to, make, to, to, to have our own faith in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.